Welcome to the Clark Howard Show, our mission to serve you and empower you so that you make better financial decisions in your life. In today's episode, news about mortgage relief. I'll fill you in on the latest info. Also, there are some scary crime stats being reported around the country. I'm going to talk about what you need to do to protect yourself. So we have had unprecedented moves over the last year to protect renters and borrowers from facing eviction for renters and foreclosure and eviction for borrowers in mortgages. And the clock had reached midnight on those programs, and there are changes for both borrowers and renters. And there's been so much confusion about this. First, I wanted to talk about renters. So as a renter, you don't have automatic protection. You have rights that can prevent an eviction, but only if you exercise those rights. The rights only extend to people who can demonstrate that you have suffered financial harm because of coronavirus. And we really have been split as a country. There are tens of millions of people who've suffered extreme hardship with job loss and the rest, and then tens of millions of others who actually are in better financial shape almost a year out from the onset of coronavirus in the United States than they were before. So it is a really mixed story. For renters, you have a form you have to fill out that we have a link to at Clark.com where you verify the economic hardship you've had. You must go to your court dates if your landlord goes after you anyway. And the courts are usually doing things by Zoom or some other online means. But if you don't appear, your landlord, even in the midst of a eviction moratorium, will still be granted relief by the court and you will, in fact, be evicted. So it's up to you to do the paperwork, proactively send the paperwork to your landlord. The landlord pretends to ignore it and files for a dispossessory and eviction on you. You must go through the process of protecting yourself in court and also make sure that you keep notes when you notified your landlord, the form you provided them, you also provide to the court to assert your rights. The meek do not remain in their apartments. You must stand up for yourself. In the case of homeowners, there are more protections because with renters, once the moratorium lifts, which is likely this spring, that that will lift, at that point, you, in theory, are supposed to pay all your back rent. Now, that's not realistic, right, if you've been unemployed or underemployed for a year. But the landlords will be free at that point to move forward with an eviction. Before moratoriums lift and when your financial situation does start to stabilize, I said, when, not if, you want to approach your landlord and see if you can work out a payment plan with them to start working on the back rent. Otherwise, 
all the eviction moratorium did was buy you time, but you still face an ultimate eviction. For people that are mortgage borrowers, it's a different process. And now that process has split. People who have FHA mortgages now have a better blanket of protections than people who have loans that are underwritten behind the curtain by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Most people's loans are, in fact, underwritten by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. The um, foreclosure moratorium has been extended 90 more days for people with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. If you are in uh, some kind of forbearance, you get 90 days added to that if you need it beyond what was originally a maximum 12 months. In the case of FHA borrowers, you now have protection till early summer, till June 30th, in order to then work out a new payment arrangement. The FHA, because it is a direct federal agency loan, the FHA will have fairly standardized procedures from that point on what your workout will be, how you will eventually make good on the money that you did not pay over the last year. In the case of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, there will be a number of different ways that lenders deal with you. They have some um, latitude in how they work out payment plans with you. The likeliest course that will work for most people is the missed months or full year or so of mortgage payments will be added onto the back of your loan as an additional um, months or year or a little more to your loan. That is, for many people, going to be the best arrangement. But again, you cannot be passive. You must be active here, and you just don't stop paying. And when the moratorium's over, you just don't say, okay, everything's going to be great. You are the one who's got to be active with your lender on coming up with a workout arrangement, what they do in commercial real estate all the time with commercial mortgages or workouts. And you will be doing a workout of your mortgage where it works for you and the lender. It's time for your questions you posted for me at clark.com slash ask. Krista, what you got today? Well, Ed is currently in Utah, and he says, Clark, I'm looking at setting up a virtual mailbox. Do these work the same as physical mailboxes? Can I use this as a legitimate street address to cover my insurance policies, including auto, rental, homeowners, and umbrella policies? I will be traveling and won't have a physical home address. So this is an interesting question and a very gray area. There are uh, an unknown number of people that may be uh, past a million or so who do in fact have no permanent set address they uh, live in rvs as so many people especially since the pandemic now do and there are any of a number of services available all over the country where they give you a street address and unit number instead of a box number and it could be a uh, UPS store, a FedEx place, or other facilities like that. It could be one of those office suite kind of places. They open your mail for you. They scan it and email the scan mail to you. 
And there are people who this works great for. The one thing you really want to think about using any of these services is, are there people insured or bonded if somebody turns out to be an identity thief or something like that, where they could have a field day because you're trusting them to be the organization opening your mail? As for it being established with insurance and the rest, this is where it gets really gray, is whether or not you have a true proper domicile, that's what's considered to be your permanent location, permanent address, and this has been both an opportunity and in some places a scandal with people establishing specifically residency in the state of Montana, because a very... Um, very favorable tax treatment for people that are nomadic in the state of Montana. There have been people using Montana billing addresses when they're actually fully residing somewhere else. Don't engage in that. But if you are truly a nomadic person, that's one place you should look at is where you set down your at least virtual roots. Kathy in Rhode Island says, I recently tried setting up a Credit Karma account. Given that my credit is frozen, they will only complete the setup of my account if I submit a copy of my driver's license and social security card. This sounds like a scam to me. Submitting these documents just makes me even more vulnerable to identity theft or fraud. Is there another option to consider? Yes, and it's a much better option. You can temporarily thaw your credit for just the day if you want or a couple of days, and then you will be able to establish your identity with Credit Karma properly, and then your credit goes back refrozen. Much better idea than you mailing in personal documents like that. So it is TransUnion and Equifax that you, uh, with the two of them, that you temporarily thaw your credit. It takes about, oh, two, two and a half minutes to thaw your credit with one of the credit bureaus. It's really easy to do that. And then it goes right back frozen. And that's what I would recommend. And Krista, my credit score on Credit Karma has been going down. Uh-oh. So you see, I shouldn't have looked <laughs> to see that my score is down how much? Uh, 30 points. Wow, what'd you do? last month. Mm-mm says my utilization is too high now. It's 10%. Okay. Well, you're not looking to borrow any money anyway, right? Because you pay everything off. Everything in full. <laughs> yep. So coming up, I want to talk about crime, something that really has created a wave of fear across the United States. And I want to talk about the things you can do and I can do that will at least prevent us being victims of some of the nonviolent crimes that are the ones zooming up the most. The crime stats have been a real issue during the last year with coronavirus is uh, any category you can look at in crime has gone up. And the numbers have been pretty scary across uh, the country, not just metro, big metro areas, even smaller communities have seen a rise in crime. And the good news, even though there have been these increases in murders around the United States and violent crime 
shootings, that sort of thing, they still represent a tiny portion of overall crime. For most of us, the crime we're going to deal with is somebody breaking into our car or somebody stealing our car. You know, in the past, we were told never leave things visible in our car. Well, now over the last year, people are seeing their vehicles broken into regularly who have nothing visible in the car. That's led to people in some parts of the country to actually leave their vehicles unlocked or even leave windows down so that a criminal doesn't break the window. Because the biggest hassle, somebody breaks your window, and then you got to go get the thing fixed, and there's glass all over your car. And um, I have actually experienced car break-ins five times over my driving lifetime. Five times I've had windows broken. You know why I've had that happen five times? One time, I, like an idiot, I left a camera when people used to love cameras and cameras were something people used other than the ones built in their phone. I left a camera on the back seat of a car and the window got smashed and the camera was taken. My bad mistake. But the other times my car was broken into, it was because of my cheapness. Krista, do you know why that was because of cheapness? Oh, I'm guessing it's because you found your free parking somewhere far away from wherever you were going. <laughs> yeah, I tended over the years, there would be times I'd park in marginal areas because the parking was free and I didn't want to pay. And I'd come back and I'd find the window smashed. I bet the thieves were sad, though, when they didn't find much in a, they found any nothing. car you have. <laughs> but I had to deal every time with the window. Uh, so... That I've learned not to do anymore. I still will look for free parking, but if the neighborhood starts to get sketchy, then I bail on that. So that I got a little smarter on. But the thing is, people breaking in, even when there's nothing visible, and then rifling through the glove box or popping a lever so they can go in the trunk or whatever. Uh, So for those reasons, it is a good idea for you to consider leaving your car unlocked now when you park it. Now, it means when you come back to your car, always look on the back floorboard to make sure there's nobody in the vehicle waiting for you. But that way, you're likely to prevent the hassle factor of the busted window. Now, the other thing, I see it every single week. That's people who pull up somewhere, like to run in to get carry-out food, pull up to the convenience store, whatever, they leave the car running. Running! And that's like you posted a giant neon sign on your vehicle, steal me. You know, there have been these horrific stories about people who run in somewhere leaving a kid in a car seat. And then the criminal hops in, steals the car, and then not only is the vehicle gone, their kid's gone too. So this is not a good plan. And we talked recently about how many vehicle thefts now are because of push-to-start vehicles that people put their keys 
in the center console, forget they've done that, turn their vehicle off, get out, walk in somewhere, come back, the vehicle is gone. So the vehicle will start with push to start with your keys in your pocket or in your purse or whatever. Don't put it in that central console where you might forget it. And then you got the whole, oh, what a hassle it is when your car gets stolen. So with all that happy talk, Krista, (laughs) what you got? Well, Kathleen says, my only debit card is through Schwab. I use this card during overseas travel for the benefits it provides. Does Schwab have more consumer protection features than a regular bank debit card? I've requested an ATM card, but I'm told that it's not offered. Thank you for addressing my question. Yeah, so I'm in the same situation as you. I carry the Schwab card because pre-pandemic and soon post-pandemic, I love to travel outside the United States, and I will resume that. And the uh, beauty of the Schwab card is they absorb all ATM junk fees when you use anybody's ATM anywhere in the United States or anywhere in the world, unlimited number of transactions. Schwab has a very good uh, written series of protections for its account holders protecting you against fraud. And over the years, I've not heard any complaints from anyone that Schwab let them down when there was fraudulent activity involving the Schwab debit card. Uh, ATMs, people don't use much anymore. In fact, the number of questions we hear and problems we hear about ATMs have really fallen off the charts. They're not even a factor anymore because so seldom do people use ATMs anymore. And you always say make sure you set your daily limits, right, on how much the card can be used for cash and for spending. Yeah, and you can with many debit cards. I don't know if this works with the Schwab one. You can set it up where it doesn't work what they call uh, point of sale. And it then only will work at an ATM. So even if it has a piece of trash, fake Visa or fake MasterCard logo on it, uh, you still are not at risk for somebody shopping willy-nilly on it if you can block using it at point of sale. Well, you can also just set the limit to zero on point of sale. Well, that's what that I mean. Thank yeah, you. yeah. Either way. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Uh, another kind of travel-related, Joan in New York says... Thank you for your service to the public without political bias. Just helpful information. Second, now that those who love travel will be receiving their COVID vaccination, we're feeling better about it. Since you were in the travel business, it would be great for us, if your listeners, for you to have a podcast with just travel information, informing us on the reentry, safe places to start our travel adventures again, etc. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been thinking about just in the last week I've been reading all these stories that bookings are going up a whole lot for uh, adventure kind of travel leisure kind of travel as more and more people get their second vaccination and there are a lot of people who just love travel like I do and so why don't we do that why don't we do a podcast just about how you re-enter the travel world and the gotchas to watch for. Absolutely. And John in California says, my daughter has $20,000 saved up, and in two to three years, she'll buy a house. What should she do with the money until then? 
Dullesville, Dullesville, Dullesville. She's going to buy a house in the next couple of years, two or three years. All she can do with it is preserve it. Right now, the best you can earn on savings is about half a percent. You just suck it up and earn like nothing on the money because the more important thing is she's doing a great job building up this money to buy her home. And that's the key thing. She can't worry that much in a short cycle on what that money will generate as it's in a parking space waiting to be used for the home because any form of investing is too risky when you're looking out just a couple of years. And Benson in Connecticut says, I'll be relocating to Delaware to begin my residency training, four years of training. My wife and I are contemplating whether to buy or rent. Our combined salary would be approximately $150,000 for the next four years. We're also expecting a newborn this summer, after which my in-laws would be spending significant time with us. So we're looking for a three-bedroom, two baths. Do you think it would be wise to buy or rent for just four years? What are your thoughts on the physician mortgage option? I also forgot I have $250,000 of student loans. Medical school is expensive. My wife is debt-free. I know I'm lucky. Thanks for all you do, Clark. So first of all, in having a three-bedroom, it all depends on how much you like your in-laws. If you want something that large, or <laughs> they go rent somewhere else. But this is a case where in a four-year cycle with housing prices having moved up so much in recent years and maybe outrun market affordability for people versus income, that you do want to be a renter during these four years. Generally, you want to buy when you're going to be in an area seven years or longer. I've been saying lately to consider stretching your ownership cycle intention to as much as 10 years with the distortions that have taken place in the housing market. I wouldn't want you to be locked into that four years out. You find a great opportunity somewhere else in the country to practice medicine when your residency is over and you're at a cycle of the housing market where you can't sell that home, I would rather you rent and four years from now be able to pack up and go where's best for you. I want to thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. And listening to this podcast means that you have trust in me. And I hope that trust is rewarded with some information that you can put to work in your life. And you can find more great info for your wallet at our two websites, Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com. And if you want more from us, subscribe to our free newsletters, and we will help you in every way we can. So you stretch every dollar and save every dollar you can to create financial security in your life. 